No one would have believed in the last years of the 20th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed that we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely they drew their plans against us. Hello and welcome once again to What's Out There, the paranormal podcast from Out There Paranormal. And reporting the news for you on this special broadcast, we have myself, Nigel. And myself, Juliet. So, today we're going to be talking about UFOs. Now, numerous accounts have been reported of UFOs, or UAP sightings, as they're now known, around the world. Most recently, in the USA, there have been mysterious craft using alien balloon technology drifting across the skies, spying on what's going on down below. Now, many of these craft have been intercepted by the Air Force and destroyed. There are also accounts of a new type of UAP that resembles a tic-tac, the sweet that is always on hand to gently refresh your mouth wherever you are and whoever you're with. So are these craft scouting parties a forward recon for a forthcoming massive alien invasion? Only time will tell. Well, there we go. Bit tongue-in-cheek, I know, but we are going to be talking about UFOs. It's exciting, well, we're not, we're not going to be talking about Chinese spine balloons, are we? No, not really, <laughs> because uh, as as you well know, the instance over the last sort of few weeks, so we're topical for change as well, which mm. is quite remarkable for us, isn't it? There have been sightings of Chinese spy balloons over the United States, although they're probably just weather balloons that have drifted out of. Well, apparently one was a spy balloon. Ah. Yeah, and I, I think they reported the others were privately owned, I think. Ah, yeah, yeah. But they've been quite merrily shooting them down left, right and centre. Oh, no. oh, no. I'm not going to get political, but I'm just thinking, where is this heading? You've got to worry about it, haven't you? You do. Really? You've got to think, I mean, is it a deliberate ploy by the Chinese to actually provoke the Americans into doing something? Yeah, Yeah. because they're buddy buddying up with the Russians. And nobody wants anyone buddying up with the Russians. Now, and, then, and then you've got South Africa coming on board as well. Oh, don't go there. Oh. Don't go there. Oh. Let's go back to where we were. Yeah, I'd much rather talk about alien invasions than Yeah, let's World talk about Little Green Men. Okay, so here we go. Little Green Men. Of course, it's not the first time that we've had a UFO, UFO media scare that has terrified us. In this episode, we're going to look at some historical UFO encounters and alien invasion scares that you may or may not have heard about. 
Our first one takes us back to many years ago. In fact, it's 1938. And you may or may not have heard about this one, but we're going to tell you a story about a radio broadcast that went horribly wrong. Or did it? On the night of October the 30th, 1938, listeners to Mercury Theatre on the air on CBS Radio in the USA were greeted with this interruption to the programme. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. the beginning of what was to become a radio show that was so terrifying in its accounts of invading Martians wielding deadly heat rays that it is remembered like no other radio program. Now, by the end of October 1938, Wells' Mercury Theatre on the air had been on CBS for 17 weeks. A low-budget programme without a sponsor, the series had built a small but loyal following with fresh adaptations of literary classics. But for the week of Halloween, Wells wanted something very different from the Mercury's earlier offerings. I had conceived the idea of doing a radio broadcast in such a manner that a crisis would actually seem to be happening, he said, and would be broadcast in such a dramatised form as to appear to be a real event taking place at that time, rather than a mere radio play. Wells looked at various books and decided that a dramatisation of the H.G. Wells book, War of the Worlds, might make for an interesting programme. The idea was passed on to Howard Koch, a writer recently hired to script the Mercury broadcast, with instructions to convert it into late-breaking news bulletins. With just a week to come up with the script, Koch struggled with the concept. Like the original novel, the play was divided into two acts of roughly equal length, with the first devoted to fake news bulletins about the Martian invasion. The second act uses a series of lengthy monologues and conventional dramatic scenes to recount the wanderings of a lone survivor, played by Wells. The script went through a number of rewrites, with additions added. This led to it becoming very lopsided, with more fake news bulletins taking up nearly two-thirds of the show. What made the show so compelling was the use of simulated on-the-scene radio reports telling of the first land of Martian invaders near Princeton, New Jersey, and their swift and deadly advance to New York City. Now American audiences had become accustomed to news reports interrupting radio programmes. They had heard them often during the war, scaring Europe, and in late summer and early autumn of 1938. 
Now Wells played on this familiarity to stunning effect. Some listeners mistook those bulletins for the real thing and their anxious phone calls to police, newspaper offices and radio stations convinced many journalists that the show had caused nationwide hysteria. By the next morning, the 23-year-old Wells's face and name were on the front page of newspapers coast to coast, along with headlines that told of the terror that Wells's show supposedly created. Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact, declared the New York Times. Radio fake scares nation, cried the Chicago Herald and Examiner. US terrified by radios, men from Mars, said the San Francisco Chronicle. So a myth was born that still causes an element of controversy today. The truth, however, was that the whole thing had been exaggerated. Some Americans were frightened or disturbed by what they'd heard, but most listeners overwhelmingly were not. They recognised it for what it was, a clever and entertaining radio play. Despite its wobbly basis, the myth of mass panic remained steadfastly attached to the War of the Worlds programme. But why did the myth take off so fast in the first place? Well, one reason is that Orson Welles was a wonderful publicity hound who encouraged it. For newspapers, the so-called panic broadcast brought them an exceptional opportunity to censor radio, a still new medium that was becoming a serious competitor in providing news and advertising. At the end of the show, the director wrapped up the radio drama by telling his audience, This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as a holiday offering it was meant to be. The Mercury Theatre's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying, Boo. <laughs> I love that story. I know. It's just like, it's brilliant. You're listening to the radio and all of a sudden, uh, like the, the clip that we put on says, oh, you know, Martians have landed. And but Can you imagine the panic that actually caused? I mean, Because it, people left their homes, didn't they? They yeah. literally, they couldn't move in the traffic because everybody was absolutely terrified. terrified they of thought it. it was genuine. They thought actually in that small area that they sort of talked about in Princeton, New Jersey, across around New York, people that tuned in listened. They actually thought, because the yeah. way they did it was very clever. Like you said, he did... Um, short radio broadcast mm-hmm. so that we interrupt this program to yeah. bring you another update mm. and of course sort of putting the bits in between like the music show that they were doing and you're like oh my god well it was the era as well because you know it was that world war Two era so nobody kind of knew what was going to happen and yeah. you know all of a sudden an invasion okay but something completely and utterly unexpected yeah they would think it was going to be the Japs or the Germans and can't say that oh yeah whoops <laughs> not allowed to say that. I know Japanese Japanese sorry but yeah so I mean it's phenomenal I, I thought it was absolutely fast but I tell you what it, it does show how easy it is for somebody to drip feed false information into the general public yeah. and then watch the carnage. Well, they did on the BBC um, with a classic programme. Not to that extent. No, but they ghost watched, <laughs> didn't they? The thing on. Yes. And I they did the that. same there. This is a yeah. live show with you know, pipes in the pipes, and people believed it because yeah. it was so sort of convincing. They made it like a news programme. But could, just could, they have deliberately put something out there just to see 
what kind of response? Ah, you were talking about, yeah, what the war of the worlds, what actually Americans would respond to if they were actually invaded yeah. as a test. Yeah. yeah. How, how the public would react to the thought of UFOs being in our atmosphere. Yeah. Maybe it was just a little test. Although it was completely fake and a story, maybe, just maybe, it was a little test. Yeah, reading between the just lines. Just to yeah. see, because Roswell and... Others came out, which we will talk about. We are going to, yes, we could well be going down that particular rabbit hole very Indeedy, soon. Indeedy, but you know, it was just, it was just UFO flying saucer era, wasn't it? It started from you here know? and then grew, which yeah. is why I sort of gone back yeah. to take this one as the first one and then build on it because mm. the way the early sort of saucer stories build is fascinating and they all link into each they other do. in a strange way. Mm. So for this one, for instance, you were talking about it's war and people are on edge. Yeah. Well, the next story I've got actually takes place in World War Two, and it's completely fascinating. It's one of those ones that made me sit up and listen and think, you know, I really like this. This is really incredible. Plus, the fact it's got a little bit of a twist at the end as well, which is what we always like. A bit yeah. of a twist. And it's the name of a good band as well. It certainly is. Can you guess what it is yet? It's the... Go on then. Foo it? Fighters. <laughs> Foo Fighters. So here we go. It's a late November evening in 1944, partly cloudy with a quarter moon. Both fighter aircraft from the 415th Night Fighter Squadron are roaming the Rhine Valley, just north of Strasbourg on the French-German border. They are on the lookout for Luftwaffe activity, but instead they see something far more interesting. Lieutenant Fred Ringwald was the first to see it. He was riding as an observer in an aircraft piloted by Lieutenant Ed Schulter, with Lieutenant Donald J. Mayers on radar. Ringwald said, I wonder what those lights are over there in the hills. There were eight to ten of them in a row, glowing a fiery orange-red. Schulter, the pilot, spotted them off his right wing. Checking the sighting with Allied ground radar, they were informed that nothing had registered. Thinking that the lights might be some kind of Luftwaffe night fighter, Schulter turned the plane to fight, only to have the lights just vanish in front of him. At first the men said nothing, fearing they would be ridiculed, but then other similar sightings began to spread through the unit, so Tether decided to log a report. This sighting of a red light flying through the air was made by Lieutenants Edward A. Schulter and Donald J. Mayers and was the first encounter with what Lieutenant Mayers would later refer to as a Foo Fighter. On December the 31st, Bob Wilson, an Associated Press Corps correspondent, visited and interviewed members of the 415th NFS at their base in Dijon, France. The New York Times ran the story as balls of fire stalk US fighters in night assaults over Germany. In it was Lieutenant Mayer's description of the mysterious Foo Fighters. A Foo Fighter picked me up at 700 feet and chased me 20 miles down the Rhine Valley, Myers said. I turned to starboard and two balls of fire turned with me. We were going 260 miles an hour and the balls were keeping right up with us. On another occasion when a Foo Fighter picked us up, I dived at 360 miles an hour. It kept right off our wingtips for a while and then zoomed into the sky. When I first saw the things, I had a horrible thought that a German on the ground was ready to press a button and explode them but they didn't explode or attack us. They just seemed to follow us like the will-o'-the-wisp. So, more and more reports came in, all reporting similar sightings from different areas. 
On December the 17th, 1944, in Breisach, Germany, a pilot was flying at approximately 800 feet when he saw five or six flashing red and green lights in a T-shape. The lights seemed to follow him, closing in to about eight o'clock and a thousand foot before disappearing as inexplicably as they came. Now, sometimes the objects would also appear on radar. On December the 22nd, a pilot with the 415th Night Fighter Squadron reported two large orange glows, which climbed rapidly toward his plane as he flew over Hagenau in Germany. On the ground, the radar operator also got a reading on the objects. Upon reaching our altitude, the pilot related, the Foo Fighters were levelled off and stayed on my tail. He executed steep dives, banks and other evasive manoeuvres, but the UFOs matched him turn after turn. After staying with the plane for two minutes, he testified, they peeled off and turned away, flying under perfect control, and then went out. So, why call them Foo Fighters? The term Foo Fighter was coined by Donald J. Myers, who reported the first encounter with these mystery objects. He took inspiration from his favourite comic, the popular Smokey Stover strips by Bill Holman that appeared in the Chicago Tribune between the 30s and 70s. Stover's catchphrase was, where there's foo, there's fire. The term caught up with the men in the force because foo was also shorthand for foobar, a polite way of saying, fucked up beyond all recognition. <laughs> so foo, right. or foo, I know, sorry I had to say it, <laughs> made sense for something that was crazy or effed up. Internally, for the first few years, these head-scratching flying objects were called fucking Foo Fighters, which is actually how Myers used to describe them. In time, their cussing nickname was cleaned up a little and the first F was dropped. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, by February of 1945, these sightings had spread from Belgium and France to the United States night fighter bases at Pontedera and Pisa, Italy. The reports all described similar objects, what is less well known is that Royal Air Force bomber crews had been reporting strange lights too. Luminous objects and also large aeroforms in the skies over Germany since March 1942. There are well over 100 known Foo Fighter sightings from the three main battlefields during World War II. So they are Western Europe, Mediterranean and Pacific. But strange lights and unidentifiable craft were also witnessed over both North Africa and the Eastern Front. So, Nige, what are they? Well, various explanations have been put forward for these things. Um, most of them say they're unusual weather phenomena. Um, a classic one is ball lightning or St Elmo's fire, which yeah. you can often see on aircraft. But the thing with ball lightning is it's such a rarity and it's very quick. Mm -hmm. goes on, goes out. And St Elmo's fire is not ball-shaped. It's more like actual lightning. And yeah. it tends to actually be on the aircraft themselves rather than flying off in the distance. Well, there was also, um, during the Second World War, it was reported back supposedly that the Nazis 
were working on strange aircraft as well. Ah, you see, you're preempting me I here, know. aren't you? Because you know, know this, don't you? I know. So yes, it's fascinating we'll, stuff. We'll, we'll go through the sort of the normal explanations, and then we'll get yeah. to the like you said, the bit I mean, that's really fascinating. There is really photographic evidence of things that they were working on, which were way, it's way advanced. Absolutely incredible. Some of the stuff they were actually yeah. doing. It's frightening. It is really quite frightening what they could get up to. Anyway, back to where we were. So they were saying it could be light sunlight that's reflecting off ice crystals, which would be a bit difficult seeing mm. as most of them were seen at night. Not much sunlight about then. And the CIA at the time dismissed Foo Fighters as electromagnetic phenomena, which is a classic one to use. It really is, yeah. We still use it this day when talking about paranormal phenomena. Oh, it's down to electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. Pilots have also been known to suffer visual hallucinations during night flights. And add to that to the stress of flying combat patrols in the dark where you have no idea where your enemy is hiding. And you've got another possible True. explanation. Mm. But... As Juliet said, let's get on to the, oh my God, here we go. I've got the word this time, haven't I? Mm. The Gultungswaffen, which were vengeance weapons, as you were saying, which the, the Germans actually had. Indeed. So. Okay. So after the war, Rudolf Lussar, who had been a major in a German army technical unit, wrote a book. German secret weapons of World War II. Now, Lussar's book covered many of the known inventions like the V1 and V2 rockets, but also included a chapter on Wunderwaffe. In the chapter, Lussar claimed that the Germans had developed small, automated, unconventional aircraft. One version was called the Führerball, while the other was referred to as the Kugelblitz. According to the story, these craft were automatically guided and jet-propelled. These devices, according to Lusa, were supposed to use electrostatic discharges from the klystron tubes they carried to interfere with the electrical systems of the bomber's engines. It's fascinating, isn't it? It, it really is. <laughs> You're like, what, what the hell was that? Did but, they actually have this? And if they had it after the war... Did the Americans grab it? Who's got it? Mm. I mean, there was, like you were saying, at the end of the war, there was this massive dash to grab hold of German scientists. Yeah. They all wanted them. The Americans, um, for instance, managed to get hold of an intact V2 rocket, yeah. but they also got Ferner von Braun, the guy who designed it, mm -hmm. who went on then to design the Saturn V rocket that he took did. the Apollo mission to the moon. It's just amazing. And you it? don't know who got who. The Soviets got a few. They got some a lot of the good um, jet aircraft engineers the Soviets got hold of which is why they had to churn out some really good jet fighters to start with before the Americans sort of got on board with it. I mean, it would explain some of the incidents of strange craft in America that crash-landed. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, you've got this whole sort of plethora of weird objects seen in the mm. sky, things that crash. Exactly. You know, and we're building up to this story. This is the beautiful thing about these little towers is they all nicely interconnect with each other. Oh, yeah. And we love a bit of conspiracy. Oh, we do. Love a bit of weirdness. <laughs> but the strange thing is, though, that uh, the Foo Fighters simply disappear when Allied ground forces captured the area east of the Rhine. And this area was known to be the location of many German experimental stations. And this could suggest that, in fact, they were German secret weapons, which is why they just suddenly disappeared. That's my theory on yeah, it. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't mm -hmm. it? Okay. But, however, scrutiny of captured aircraft factories and testing facilities found nothing that resembled the Foo Fighters. That was admitted to, of course. 
None of the aircraft or missile designs that were discovered or design plans that were found matched the tremendous capabilities displayed by the balls of light. Captured scientists and technicians were interviewed, but they could not shed any light on the matter either. It turned out that the Germans were as much in the dark about the phenomenon as the Allies were. Were they, though? Exactly. This thing, isn't it? Because it's great. You've got this classic cover-up again. Yeah. Is it a cover-up? Is it true? We don't honestly know. It's the thing with this tale. It's why I wanted to include it is because there has never been a satisfactory explanation for the Foo Fighter phenomenon. I think there will be in a hundred years' time. Yeah, when we eventually get to access some when we of get the details. secret records. Yeah, yeah, when they get released, if they ever get released. Yeah. The really strange thing is, of course, is um, when the Germans were questioned by the Allies, um, they found out that they, the German Luftwaffe parties, had also um, seen unexplained aerial phenomena, and they thought mm. they were a secret weapon being uh, developed by the Allies. So they thought that was that. They thought, it was, but then again, of course, if they don't know anything about it, well, exactly, because it's experimental and secret, or they were told not to say anything. Quite there is possibly. that as well. Yeah. So, despite all of these speculations, no conclusive explanation for the Foo Fighters has ever been found. It's incredible. Mm. Absolutely incredible. It's one of those fascinating things. And there's some very good sort of TV documentaries about it which sort of lead on and also lead on to... I've watched so many of them. ...other connections. Because we, we have to declare... We love this sort of thing. Yep, we, we are. We're honestly. Are we um, going to talk about my favourite? The bell. We are, are going to talk about the bell. I knew you were. I love the bell. I'm be. fascinated by the bell. What happened to the bell? Where okay. did it go? So, did it exist? One of the rumours that came out of this was the fact that the Germans had been developing some kind of flying saucer technology. Um, they had a guy called in Austria called Victor Schauberger, and he'd invented something called the Vortex engine. Or I think it's called a Respuline drive or something like that. Respuline um, drive that actually trying to put into a flying saucer. And the bell, or Die Glöcke, mm. as you want to call it, which is the German for it, was possibly a version of this um, Vortex engine that they actually got to work. Yeah, I mean, there's so many theories on did it exist? What was it? Chains were found that were supposedly a place where it was held down in a secret outside base. Yeah, that's the one in Poland that that's they called, right. referred to as Hitler's Stonehenge. Yes. It's that sort of round thing. That's right, where yeah. it supposedly sat. Yeah. And there's nothing there now at all, apart from, apart from the thing. ruins. Yeah, that's it, just the thing standing there. You know, yeah. but some people say it's a craft. Some people say it was to time travel. Yeah. Some people say it was all kinds of uh, rumours. Um, it was a, a, a bomb, a type of device that used um, a certain, what was it, um, sound energy to control things. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of different theories as to what this machine actually was. Now, there was a crash, wasn't there? We were talking about before we started the podcast. Yeah, we should, we'll have to go back and find out all the details, but there was a crash in the United States. That resembled what they thought the bell looked was, like. was, exactly, yeah. And that was um, in the, the late 1940s. Mm -hmm. so After the Second World War. Exactly. You're wondering then whether or not uh, the Americans got hold of this yeah. well, and the scientists it. with it, and did they actually get hold of a copy and flew it, mm. and it crashed. Oh, it just It's, it's absolutely me. fascinating. The thing I love about this is because it's sort of coming to sort of common myth, mm. all this conspiracy theory, there's some excellent sort of stuff on the back of it. If you've not watched it, 
go and watch Iron Sky. Oh yeah. It is honestly it's it's a tongue in cheek, a dreadful film. And it's all about the Nazis having a special base on the moon with their flying saucers <laughs> and they come back to invade Earth and it is so brilliant. But it's all based around this concept that the Germans had built these craft. The Hanabu saucer is a classic example of it, which was this flying saucer weapon that they had. They could actually put gun turrets and stuff on it and they were going to fly up into American bomber formations and it'll be able to shoot them all down and it's just Brilliant. It's insane. It really but it's is. Brilliant. I mean, it, it all this tech and things like that fascinate me because everything we know um, that they're doing is at least 50 years behind. Yeah. 50 years. I mean, somebody said to me once that um, worked on Samsung mobile phones that the tech they have that they're releasing to the public is 30 years behind what they're actually developing. Yeah. Somebody said to me, I don't know how accurate that is, so correct me if I'm wrong, but. Yeah. That's what they said to me. That, and if they're doing that with mobile phones, what on earth are they developing in top secret bases? With the military stuff. Yeah. In it's Alaska. Incredible. And all what over is the in place. Alaska. Hey. That's another podcast. <laughs> we love a bit of conspiracy. That's another podcast. We've thrown ourselves deep into the conspiracy we wormhole, haven't we? Way, we're gone. But, you know, we can <laughs> safely say, we can honestly safely, safely say that 1947 was certainly. The year of the flying saucer. It Yay. certainly was. This is where it all starts to take <laughs> off. <laughs> oh, I love that. I know. That's <laughs> yeah. great. All the it? classic sort of B movies from that sort of period. Love them. They are brilliant, they are they? So anyway, on June the 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold, an experienced pilot with more than 9,000 hours of flying time, was flying a small aircraft near Washington's Mount Rainier. The afternoon was crystal clear and he was cruising at an altitude of 9,200 feet. A minute or two after noting a DC-4 about 15 miles behind and to the left of him, he was startled by something bright reflecting off his plane. At first he thought he'd nearly hit another aircraft, but as he looked in the direction the light had come from, he saw nine peculiar looking aircraft flying rapidly in formation towards Mount Rainier. So, as the strange tailless craft flew between his plane and Mount Rainier and then off toward distant Mount Adams, Arnold noted their remarkable speed. He later calculated that they were moving at around 1,700 miles an hour and said he got a pretty good look at their black silhouettes outlined against Rainer's snowy peak. He later described them as saucer-like discs, a description that the press latched onto, adding flying in front of some of the published articles. Arnold said, the appearance of these flying saucers didn't particularly alarm him because he assumed they were some kind of experimental military aircraft, but the War Department had no comment to make. In fact, the official Army Air Corps position was that Arnold had either seen a mirage or was hallucinating. Oh, come on, mate. <laughs> it's a classic, really? isn't it? Whoa, that's he's all oh, you're just seeing things, mate. Oh, oh, there's you know, nothing they there. Drive me nuts. I mean, it is it's standard procedure, isn't it? I it's know. what they roll out because. Did they have but something? Do you there? know what? You know, okay, yes, it's possible, but there's too many sightings, too much going on. And, you know, these poor guys are highly intelligent, experienced men going up there with you know with a lot of flying hours behind them yeah and you know for, for them to confirm that oh it's you you know it's nothing you're hallucinating there's something wrong with you it's degrading quite frankly it is yeah i mean um at the time he insisted he was perfectly alert and lucid adding that he was not a publicity hound so he wasn't after sort of getting himself in the newspapers or anything 
And this was confirmed by the first journalist he spoke to, who said that Arnold had the makings of a reliable witness. He was a respected businessman and experienced pilot, and he seemed to be neither exaggerating what he had seen, nor adding sensational details to his report. He also gave the impression of being a careful observer. Hmm. So, what did he do about it? Well, he invited both the Army and the FBI to investigate. Can't blame him either. Exactly, yeah. The Army sent a couple of officers out to talk with Arnold probably telling him to silence himself, Mm -hmm. even though they concluded that a man of his character and apparent integrity almost certainly saw what he claimed to have seen. The army's initial verdict remained unchanged. What a surprise. Yeah, he's seeing things. As Arnold's story leaked out, at least four other people stepped forward to say that they had seen the objects in or around the same location as Arnold's sighting. The most credible report may have come from United Airlines crew, which reported seeing nine similar disc-like objects over Idaho only 10 days after Arnold's sighting. Whether Arnold actually saw something or not, the resulting publicity touched off a worldwide spate of UFO sightings. Barely two weeks after Arnold's flight, our next story broke and UFO hysteria was on. Oh, I've got to announce this one. Yeah, I it's, love this it's one. Gonna, it's for you, isn't oh, it, George? This is one of my favourites. Just for you. So, you know, this is one we're all familiar with, isn't it? Roswell. So, who remembers the year? Uh, I do, and it's 1947, yes. once again. So, on 7th of July, a local rancher named Mac Brazel contacted the sheriff in Roswell, New Mexico, to say he discovered some strange debris spread over his ranch. In fact, he'd found it days earlier, but hadn't thought much of it until all the stories about flying saucers emerged. Thinking there might be a connection and guessing something might have crashed during a recent storm, he alerted his local sheriff and went to see him with some samples of the debris. The sheriff contacted the nearby Roswell Army Air Base and intelligence officer Jesse Marcel went to the crash site with Brazel and recovered more of the debris. The military base's public information officer, Walter Holt, worked with a local journalist to release a Newswire report about the event. The many rumours regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence officer of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of the local ranchers in the Sheriff's Office of Chaves County. The flying object landed on the ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and consequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. So you can imagine the news sent shockwaves around the world. I mean, I'm stunned that they actually came out and said it's a flying disc. I know. You know, it's just like, here it is, straight out of that, no messing. But it soon changed, didn't it? It certainly did. So, it's the iconic front page headline of the local Roswell Daily Record that's best known. RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. On the back of this, a UFO legend was born and a whole collection of conspiracy theories formed to try and understand exactly what had crashed at Roswell. 
Now, none of this is helped by the next action undertaken within 24 hours of the newspaper headline shouting out the news of the crash. There was a stunning development, wasn't there, Nigel? There certainly was. In a complete reversal of their position regarding the Roswell debris discovery, the US military said a mistake had been made and that the flying saucer was a crashed weather balloon. Oh, we've heard this one before, haven't we? A series of photos were published showing military personnel holding some of the debris. Sure enough, it looked pretty uninspiring and was entirely consistent with the tin foil mentioned by the military in their explanation. The weather balloon explanation was almost universally believed and accepted, and Roswell disappeared from the flying saucer narrative. Hang on a minute. Okay. Hang on a minute. <laughs> right. I just knew you were going to jump well, in. It's like, go on then. You know, go on. <laughs> it wasn't universally believed at all because, you know, when you talk or you Google Roswell or you type something in about it, so many people are like, yeah, really? Bit of tinfoil. Crashed weather balloon. Really? Wasn't really universally accepted, oh, was it? What? It was just like the military were like, okay, this is what it was. End of subject. The sort of the period of time they talk about in the 1940s, that yeah. was sort of then accepted then because people were more sort of, oh, it's the military and they believed everything the government said. And they used to get visits from here come the men in black. <laughs> this is it, you, you see. So, Don't say anything. Don't say you know, anything. No, 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 no. And they flash know? that light in your eyes so they make you forget they stuff. To, they used to kind of scare people. And oh, yeah. I suppose because there wasn't the social media for people to, you know, come out and, and, and say things anonymously. This is it. People would be silent. Yeah, they would sort of say, this is it, accept it, and you would accept it. Or did they? Ah, we well, see, this so is what, where we're going. See, this is what I'm saying, because I don't think people did accept it. You know, and, and, and there's so many people, even military personnel at that time, that were saying, no, it wasn't a bit of tinfoil, it wasn't a crashed weather balloon. What and we need. all of a sudden, though, they just went quiet. What we need to do. What? We need to look a little bit further. I thought you were going to say build our own weather balloon. No, no, no. No, we'll leave that to the Chinese. Yeah, no, yeah they're, they're very good at that. Oh, they are, aren't they? <laughs> but what I'm going to say to you is, yeah. let's go a little bit further because okay. things are going to change. Okay. Okay. So, as we're saying, that was all until 1978 when a nuclear physicist... Nuclear physicist turned ufologist Stanton T. Friedman was tipped off that a retired military man had an interesting story to tell. Now listen up, folks. None other than Jesse Marcel, who was the intelligence officer who was first on the Roswell crash site in 1947. Uh Mm, Aha! Yeah. So the story goes that Marcel told Friedman... The weather balloon explanation had been a cover story and that the photos had been staged. Yeah. See? I just, that's what I was See? saying to you. You sort of jumped on your horse and went, hang on, hang on, it's not a weather balloon. I'm like, let's carry on with the story, Jules, because it all becomes a bit more apparent. Well, there was all these stories as well, like some of the metal that couldn't be burnt and couldn't be melted and you'd heat it up and it would stay cold. And they couldn't and identify it as any kind of, of metal that they knew of. Yeah. yeah it was completely so alien to them. So, yeah. Um, I've, I've lost where I am now. We're oh, yeah, about... that's right. So we're talking about the weather balloon debris being substituted for the real wreckage, which yeah. is what a lot of people believed happened. I was going to say, so they and are they sort just, of... 
but was their little men actually captured? Ah, Who now knows? you see, look, you're jumping ahead of the game I know, again. I know, I know. Because the problem with this one is you know this one so well. Oh, I love it. And I'm trying to tell the story in an organised manner. Do you know what? <laughs> organised. Do you know what? Yeah, anyway, Area 51, I, I remember a story. My mum has actually been, because my mum lives in um, Arizona, guys, for yeah. those that don't know, and my mum actually visited Area 51. Wow. And she put... Just because, you know, we come from a line of, of people that like to sort of, you know, push the boundaries a little bit. You know, my mum's a little bit like that. Bit of a boundary pusher, my parents are, both of them, <laughs> as you anything. well know. I'm not saying a And word. my mum decided she was going to put a foot over the do not go past line. Mm -hmm. A little white truck suddenly appeared over the horizon. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, getting back to this story. With Marcel, he claimed that everyone involved in the retrieval knew that the object had indeed been an extraterrestrial spaceship. So it was the flying saucer, they said in the initial newspaper report before that was taken down and they denied all knowledge of it with their balloon story. Well, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, I'm not being funny. Anyone can tell the difference, even if you're a farmer. Yeah. You'd be able to tell. I mean, that sounds right. I don't mean to sound patriotic. No, but he, he I don't knew. mean it like that. But if you're not involved in the military and you're working on the land all the time, you're still going to know the difference between a UFO and a weather balloon. A weather balloon, yeah. He's going to know that We're it was know the difference. a flying disc and landed on his property. And I think that's what he actually told the I sheriff. I think even Izzy would know the difference, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, if you've got, you know, alien people lying about on and, and, and strange debris, you know, littered about the place... You're going to know the difference between that and a weather balloon, I think. I you think are. even Izzy yep. would be able to tell the difference. Well, as it stands, over the next few years, uh, loads of researchers dug deeper into the mystery, tracking down many of the key players, so all the people that were involved in it initially, okay, um, located additional witnesses and trying to piece together exactly what happened on that night, on that mm. day when they found this flying saucer. A number of retired military personnel who had been based at Roswell corroborated some elements of the crash spacecraft narrative and added their own details. So the story's building. They're sort of adding what they know I about I thought it. they weren't allowed to do that. I thought they were told not to speak about it. Well, I think once it sort of broke, the story broke, they sort of then sort of started coming to the fore and saying, yeah, we know what it was and all okay. this kind And they're sort of saying all retired guys. But the thing is, um, skeptics argued, though, that they were simply telling the researchers what they wanted to hear. So these army guys turned up and were saying, like, oh, it's a flying source, because they wanted yeah. the researchers to think that's exactly what they wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. um, writing themselves into the story either as a prank, because they thought it might be funny to talk about flying saucers, mm. or because they're actually seeking attention for themselves, ex-retired military officers, you know, look at me, look at me, and I'm about the flying saucer, so... The Roswell incident grew and grew. Books were written, documentaries, drama series, and a movie were made. And the idea of a UFO crash became so embedded in pop culture that even if people had no particular interest or belief in UFOs, there was a good chance they'd actually heard of Roswell. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's just one of the most famous ones out there, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. I mean, you, you can say the word straight when people know Roswell. Oh, yeah, that's the one where it crashed and, you know, and they found the flying saucer and all this kind I of mean, stuff. I mean, I've been to a museum in, in Sedona in Arizona, UFO uh, museum yeah. and stuff, and it is absolutely fascinating. And they talk all about Roswell in that, and, and there's a little bit which is supposed to be um, an original from the wreckage. 
um, in the museum. I mean, you don't know whether it's it's real or not. It could be anything in there. Yeah. But it's still really, really fascinating. And they've got on site um, in this museum, they've got a giant UFO, like you know, <laughs> model with a little alien head sticking out. You know, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> That's the one new. thing I love about America. Is oh, they'll take find... they'll take it on board and put these weird oh, little things out in the middle gosh. of nowhere. Yeah, love it. Absolutely, and you've got these sort of these sort of restaurants and things that are shaped like UFOs, and you walk up the ladder to get inside them and that. Oh yeah, but I mean, it's now become so difficult to separate the fact from the fiction that has grown up around this incident from a similar crash. I mean, it spiralled into a massive conspiracy. Oh god, there were so many sort of different stories, different yeah. narrative, different things going on that you like pick the bones out of it. Oh yeah, and it's almost impossible to do so. Yeah, and of course. It deepens, doesn't it, Jules? Because it, it totally does. I mean, yeah. we all we've all heard about Area Fifty One. You know, we've heard all the stories, and you know, it was claimed that the wreckage had been taken to Area Fifty One. And um, for those of you that don't know, um, it's a remote facility in the Nevada desert where the Americans developed and tested um, new aircraft aircraft like the U two, the SR seventy one Blackbird, and stealth fighters and bombers. You know, there was a lot of top secret things going on there. Don't think so much of it happens there now. No, no, but at because, the time it was. Yeah, yeah, it was It was the big one. I mean, yeah. it's only recently that the Americans have actually confirmed that it, it is official and it exists. Yeah. I think a lot of their stuff has, um, dare I say, gone off to Alaska, you know, under there, on a <laughs> very large base. <laughs> you you mean so conspiracy theories said, again, No, 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 it's been seen. It has been seen. They've got a huge base down there. You know, which which is why the Chinese are quite interested. Which is in why they're flying their high altitude Indeed weather balloons do do. over, and of course, Indeed back do do. to the beginning of our story again, when we started with yeah. the Chinese balloons. So, getting back to our story about this, I love this. I love this. Rumors started that an alien body, more than one, I have to say, not just one alien body, but there was apparently one or two alien uh, bodies. Yeah, had been recovered from the wreckage. And supposedly, one was alive as well. Yeah, they said one was supposedly. one was alive when they got him there, and he died up shortly afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in 1995, you guys might remember this: a strange video suddenly appeared out of nowhere, purporting to show an alien autopsy, which it was implied was on the body recovered at Roswell. Yeah. I think that was faked. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's it's. Good. I do think it, it it's, but there were certain things I think um, within the video that perhaps shouldn't have been there, and, and people are saying it was faked. But yeah. it was a bloody good fake. Oh yeah, it was cleverly I done. Think. Yeah, really cleverly done. I think, but oh, yeah. it does make me wonder. I'm sure they videoed it. They must have. I mean, if they were going to do an autopsy, they would have videoed it, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah. Having that craft there, I mean, it, it makes you wonder what they've done with it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's rumours, Sam, I and mean, there's there's classic ones in sort of various films, like Independence Day, where they've reverse engineered some of the stuff that they found on this UFO. Oh, is that where the Americans saved the world? Yeah, that's of course, yeah. But <laughs> what they're saying is some of these, some of the tech or the stuff that they found on this craft, they reverse yeah. engineered and put it onto some of the stuff that they've got now. Well, apparently, um, those that are interested, UFO buffs, and me being one of them. The um, look up the TR3B, have a look at that, Google that one um, if you're interested, because apparently that is an American craft that is based on reverse engineering, which is what you're talking about. It's just the triangular shaped thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah nuclear powered TR3B. Yeah. 
um, which, you know, people see the, the dark triangle in the sky with, with the lights in the corners around it and things like that. There's been a lot of sightings. Now, the TR-3B now is quite old hat and it's been replaced by um, more stealth-like advanced models. Yeah. Um, there's one, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's one um, which has got cloaking. Um, so it completely, it can completely disappear from right. sight in the sky. It's like something out of Star Trek, isn't oh it? Oh my God. It's a Romulan ship. I it was know, there, right? but now it's gone. I it's know. put its cloaking device on. <laughs> we'll have to learn to speak Romulan, won't we? Oh dear. Can you mm. speak Romulan? I can't. No, me neither. Was it Romulans or was it Klingons? I get oh, Klingons! Because there is a complete Klingon language, isn't there? There is. Yes. I can't remember who had the cloak. Oh, no, we're going, we're was going it off. Klingons? Let's... I think it was Klingons that had the cloaking. Romulans had it as well, I think. Oh, gosh. Guys, enlighten us. When you listen to this, come on. Was you it guys, the Romulans or was it the Klingons who had cloaking yeah. devices on their ships in yeah, Star Trek? I love I love Star Trek. Honestly. Anyway, look, we digressed. Sorry, we digressed again, didn't we? We, we, we went down that sort of <laughs> down Roswell reverse engine, hole. UFO, alien autopsy Off rabbit hole. Off we go, hole. Juliet. Down yeah. the rabbit hole well, I know. I mean, this is why I chose to do a podcast about UFOs because I know that you love it. Oh, I do. It's a, it's a subject so you're passionate. really into. I've done yeah. so much reading about UFOs and yeah, stuff that's so going on. I thought on. we've got to do one. Love it. Yeah. Anyway, so on the back of all this crazy speculation, the US government succumbed to media and public pressure and they launched their own retrospective investigations and they published two reports. The first in 1994, released by the US Air Force, considered that the weather balloon story mm-hmm. had been bogus. Yeah. So they actually admitted that it was a bogus story. Well, we all know it was. Okay, but... According to the 1994 explanation, the wreckage come from a spy device created for an until then classified project called Project Mogul. Okay, the device was uh, connected to a string of high-altitude balloons. We're back to balloons again. Uh-huh. Equipped with microphones that were designed to float furtively over the USSR. <laughs> <laughs> we're back to the sneaky Chinese balloons again. Oh Only this time it was us spying on the Russians. <laughs> Detecting sound waves at a stealth distance. Um, these balloons would then uh, monitor the Soviet government's attempts at testing their own atomic bomb. Because they were paranoid that the Russians were going to had bombs and they were going to be testing them as well because at the time yeah. the Americans really had only the only country that ever dead detonated a device mm. was the ones that dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki oh, yeah. at the end of well, World the War II the bombs that Russians have got now are ridiculously oh, God, terrifying you don't even want to go there I mean how is it one of them they've got is it a hundred times more powerful than Hiroshima yeah that's terrifying. And some of the stuff, they, they, the um, delivery vessels that they've got as well, they're these hypersonic missiles that you can't detect, and they've got nuclear-powered um, torpedoes that they can fire and cause a tsunami. It's and really frightening. It is, yeah. Especially yeah. poor, yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, you know, poor Ukraine at yeah. the moment. I, my heart goes out to the Ukrainians. Well, I, I tell you what, they're doing a grand job. <sighs> they're so brave. Yeah. World's biggest suit, one of the world's biggest superpowers, Pop, the biggest army in the world, the best army in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Not to fault the Ukrainians. No. Now you realise. Yeah. No. Big hearts, those guys. Where were we? Soviet balloons. Yes. Yes. So they were trying to see whether the Russians had their own atomic bomb. Mm. So they set up this device called Project Mogul, which is a series of balloons all linked together. Okay. Yeah. And because Mogul was a covert operation, the new report claimed a false explanation of the crash was necessary to prevent giving away details of their spy work, which is why they then lied about it, saying it was a I weather balloon. I get it. Balloon. Do you know what? I get it completely. Yeah. But you would be able to tell the difference between a UFO and a weather balloon. And one of the witnesses who saw the original debris said there was these strange markings on the metal, which looked a little bit like hieroglyphics, but they weren't. Hmm. Not going to get that on a weather balloon, I wouldn't have thought. No. 
So not what uh, not on this sort of thing designed to spy on the the Russians. No, and yeah. you know, as we mentioned as well, the metal um, debris that all disappeared. Yeah, you know, the the farmer. Um, I think somebody came to visit the the farmer of the land and took everything away, because he, I think was it him and his daughter originally, or him and his son? They picked up. They picked up everything that was there. Well, not everything because there was too much of it, but there was bits, tiny bits of metal fragments that they actually took back. Yeah. And he was looking at it and he couldn't figure out what it was, and he tried um, setting it on fire and 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 doing things to it, and even when he heated it up, it just stayed cold. Yeah. It didn't warm up. And, you know, there was these, like I said, these strange sort of, you know, almost like hieroglyphics on it and stuff, mm. which is a little bit like our um, landing as well in the UK, because that had hieroglyphs on it as well, didn't it? Oh. Our very own was one. I know where you're going to. Rendlesham. But I'm just going to wind this one up first and then we'll go to... Yeah, okay. So, as we're saying about Project Mogul and the balloons, okay, this takes us very conveniently back to the start of our podcast and then the modern day balloon saga that took place in the skies across America recently. Oh, yes. So, Chinese spy balloons, or sneaky alien invaders, are using a clever new disguise to scrutinize humanity regarding this earth with envious eyes once more and slowly and surely drawing their plans against us. So, yeah, why are we so scared of these aliens? I think it's because well, we're not, are we? Are we scared? Well, I don't know that. Well, there, there seems to be sort of this, this this terrifying thing. Whenever you get events happening, there all seems to be this sort of furore about it. And people sort of panic and, oh, what are they going to be doing and all yeah. this kind of... When we started off, I mean, okay, we started off with the 1938 War of the Worlds and there was that panic, I suppose, because the way it's presented, there's that sort of um, radio drama with the news reports and well, things. Well, I, I was going to say, and if you look back at the original movies, most of them about invasions of Earth and, you know, firing lasers upon us and all this kind of stuff, yeah. you know. And I think Stephen Hawkins, bless him, said when he was alive that it would perhaps not be within our interests to contact alien life because the chances are they would want the resources on our planet yeah. and they might very well be hostile. No. So with the media and the movies creating this environment, people are going to be scared. And when you've got scientists, you know, you know, God bless his heart, you know, because obviously he's passed away now. But when you've got people like, Mr. Hawking coming out and saying things like that, it is going to put the fear of God into people. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it could just be a, a little alien fella want, wants to just come and say hello. One would hope so. <laughs> and like you were saying... Maybe I'm a bit naive, yeah. folks, but we had... does it have to be hostile? No, I don't suppose it does. No? Well, there's so many theories around why they're watching this, why they're doing this. Were, mm. Are we an experiment that they set up? Possibly. You know, something that they bred and put here to see yeah, how it would why do. Why not? We could yeah. just be like little ants or little bees yeah. in a colony that, that, you know, they're just saying what happens. Yeah, what are they doing now? Maybe, I'm going to be controversial here, maybe God is an alien. Who knows? Could well be. You Could know? well be. 
But you did touch on one thing before I sort of said, oh, no, let's just leave that because we're now winding down and getting towards the end of this one. The English Roswell. Yeah, the English Roswell, which we're not going to do a huge amount about because I think this one really needs a podcast all of its own. Oh, yeah. But what are you talking about, Jules? Rendlesham Forest. Rendlesham Forest. And that is another alien ship that landed. Mm. Supposedly landed. Supposedly landed, yeah. Yeah, at Rendlesham Forest. And it's absolutely fascinating. Apparently... Um, the land where this craft supposedly landed, it was radioactive as well, hmm. underneath the soil. Yeah. And I've heard from quite a reliable source that, because you can visit the area in Rendlesham Forest where this craft supposedly landed, and I have been told that that isn't actually the official landing place at all. It's no. just put there for people to go and visit. Um, and one of the reasons was because of the radiation and things like that, they didn't want obviously to bring people into where yeah. it actually was decided it was unsafe yeah. yeah but it's a classic it's a classic story a- another one that has layers and layers and layers mm. upon it that you have to try and sort of dig your way through to find out exactly what the story was yeah. which is why that's going to get told on another podcast i mean may even even though i know you've been there yourself and visited yeah but there's not much there there's nothing now i know Do you know what i was so gutted because <laughs> you're really I've disappointed seen... Do you know what i've seen on social media Oh, wow. I've been to Rendlesham Forest. Yeah. And it's somewhere I've always wanted to go to. I've always been interested to see and, you know, walk the path and do all that. I, me, My boys and I took my boys along, right? It was a nice day. They moaned the entire... Because it's quite a long walk, okay? Mm. From where you park the car, it's quite a long walk to get to the supposed landing site of, of this craft. I had two boys with me moaning like hell. They are on this long, boring walk. I was quite enjoying it. It wasn't too bad. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a nice walk. But when you have two little whingers, who'd rather be on the phones or their iPad, you know, accompanying you, it kind of puts a bit of a dampener on it. But, you know, after this long walk, we finally get to the location. I'm really excited. And there's this kind of black metal thing that's been graffitied like hell, which I was really disappointed about. Yeah. And there was a board up there which had been vandalised and there was nothing there. And you're just like, oh, is that it then? Yeah. And then you've got a long walk all the way back again. And you think they could do more with it, but they just I'm amazed. haven't, have they? I'm amazed yeah. because it was, you know, a big, big deal. It was a big story. And I don't get they could make so much of that place. Yeah. Leaflets, you know, all kinds of things, promote it. You know, make a bit of money out of it. Nah, nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. And you've just ruined the Rendlesham it experience. Took me ages for to get. Oh, sorry, folks. It took me. It took me ages to drive there as well. Yeah. From from where I live, it's a bit of a hike for this us. Is isn't quite to get a there. drive. Yeah. Quite a drive. But you know, for those that want to visit, go on a sunny day. Don't go when it's rainy or cold or anything like that because it won't be enjoyable. It's nice for the walk because you're walking through woodland and it is quite a nice walk. Mm. But don't expect a huge amount of information when you get there because there's just very little yeah. there. It really is just it for the experience, isn't it? But there's not a lot. The experience of walking in a woods exactly. and then meeting a model and then going home again. Yeah. That's kind of it. Maybe do it in the dark. Why? It might be a bit more exciting. Why would it be more exciting? Well, that's when it happened in the dark, wasn't it? I suppose. But you wouldn't see an alien craft. you just come up to the vandalised 
you know, metal modern. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to add that element of excitement to it, Jules. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it won't Talking be that exciting. Talking about going out, we need to be out there. I know we need to be out there. Don't and we? we will Not in there. there. We need to be out there. Investigating. Jules, we are going to. I promise you. <laughs> I, we, we, honestly, folks, we will be doing more things. Um, we will be doing more investigations. It is a case of trying to piece it all together and find the time to actually get... I've got a new dictaphone. I know. I haven't used it yet. I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> me grief. I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> we will be doing more investigations. I think we mentioned in the previous podcast that we have got things lined up, but it is sometimes it's really difficult just to get out and about. And the weather's not been on our side either, which It's getting help. better, though. It is getting better. Stop hiding behind the weather. Get out oh. there. Put a raincoat on. Stop nagging me, woman, for goodness sake. It's like we're married or something. (laughs) But anyway, really hope you've enjoyed our UFO waffle. Yeah, I love this. We decided to be a little bit topical, which is unusual for us. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's a perfect opportunity for us to sort of mention UFOs and talk about UFOs a bit. Because as you said in the past, Jules, the paranormal is not all about ghosts. No. There's lots of different things. There's all kinds. There's cryptozoology, there's UFOs, there's ghosties. Yeah, there's all the sort of um, psychic experiments and things as well. There's so many things that we want to touch on. That's Dr. O'Keefe's area, isn't it? I know, yeah. He's a really interesting chap to talk to. We were so lucky to have him we on the podcast, indeed. weren't we? Yeah, we were. But I'm talking about PSYOPs operations. Oh, yeah. In the 70s, 1970s and 80s, where the Americans oh, and the, the Russians trying to use all sorts That's of things so like fascinating. ESP. And... That's another podcast. I know, exactly. Oh, I can't wait for that one. Yeah, that yeah. fascinates me. More weird elements to add. Mm-hmm. So like we always say... We are more than just ghost hunters because we do touch on other areas of the paranormal as well. We really do. We do indeed. We need to do some more cryptozoology, don't we? We do. Mm. And on that note, yes, we better get. We better get about going. What we're do. Yeah, we better. We better do a runner. <laughs> get working on the next one. Oh, I know. There's the whip night. Oh, I know. <laughs> I work so hard. <laughs> you I work do, so actually. very hard. You do, you do. <laughs> and all for your too. entertainment, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Hope you've enjoyed it, ladies and gents. Uh, that's enough from us. And like I said, if you want to find out what we're up to, you can trace us all across social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have a YouTube channel. We do. We're on Amazon Prime. Yeah. So just look for Out There Paranormal, and yeah. that's where we're hiding. And we're also on Spotify yeah. as well for our... For this podcast, yeah. 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 And any, any podcast provider, when you go to yeah. just ask for what's out there, and they should hopefully find us. Yeah. Just Google us. Indeed. And you can go to our website at www.outtheregroup.net and... Find us on there as well. That yeah. website's going to change, actually. I'm going to do a new... I know, you said you're going to rejig it. so mm. more exciting. Brilliant. Uh, Look no. forward to that. Okay. You're so, always busy, aren't I you? I know. I'm such a busy boy. Busy bee. Busy, busy, busy. Mm. Busy, busy, busy. And on that, it's time to say... Goodbye from me. Goodbye from him. Take care, folks. Goodbye. Bye. Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell, that's bonkers. <laughs> that's an hour of us waffling incoherently. <laughs>